My best day of work is, I can give you two types of things, is when I used to work in the neonatal unit, is to see those babies that went home and came home, came back 12 and 14 years later. No sign of prematurity because we take care of 24 and 25 weeks, right? So that gives me the joy, it gives me the satisfaction of working. That's Maria D'Souza. She's the administrative director, essentially the head nurse of Women and Infant Children's Services at LBJ Hospital, overseeing the maternity and infant wards. This is our wall of fame, right? So when babies go home at 26, 27, 30 weeks and they come up later, they come, we take their pictures, they have their stories, and these are all our success. We have much more, but these are the ones who actually come back and told us. One went to Rutgers, graduated from Rutgers. So they come and tell our stories. So this helps us. It helps parents who have babies here when they're going back saying, we have hope. It's difficult, emotionally charged work, but perhaps the most draining work in her unit is on the neonatal ward, where the team takes care of premature infants some who stay for many months before they're physically able to go home. Andrew, who was born at 29 weeks, two pounds, 11 ounces, he was diagnosed with prematurity and he had all kinds of complications with prematurity. Went back and then 20, at 22 years graduated and came back with his graduation cap and gown here. His mom made him come here and say, these are the people who gave you your start. That's one kind of best day for Maria. Morning. The other? Sorry to interrupt. It's all right. <laughs> we're, we're recording. And my name is Brennan D'Souza. I am a resident at UT Health Houston, a medical resident, first year. That's Brendan D'Souza, Maria's youngest son. Brendan is now a radiology resident at LBJ Hospital, walking the same halls his mother has for the last 30 years. Recently, the best day of my work, I can hands down tell you, was the first night he did his residency and I met him in the morning. Mm. And I came that morning and he was there. How do you look? Exhausted. <laughs> I was worried about him getting home. But that whole week where I saw him every day for a brief minute in the morning or evening was joy coming. It's like it's full circle. Because when he was in, in college in Texas A&M, that's where I got him to come. I said, you've got to come see the hospital. And his first volunteer job was actually sitting down and talking to patients. And for Brendan, what's his favorite day? You know, honestly, like, I don't know if I could pick any, like, one particular day. I, I, I don't know if it's just because, like, all of them just seem to run together <laughs> <laughs> after a certain point. Um, it would probably be day, a day on, like, wards. So wards are typically, like, inpatient you know, inpatient service uh, days for us, getting to the morning early, rounding on patients, being able to table round with our attending, have a lot of teaching, you know, two or three hours in the morning, and then seeing the patients with the attending afterwards. We have noon conference, so education mixed in. Um, so really my ideal day is like kind of doing everything, seeing patients, learning about the patients. As it turns out, mother and son have much in common. Not just the same employer, but a love of travel and a commitment to helping people. But when it comes to ideas of retirement, they have a stark generational divide. The rules of retirement have always seemed so constant. But the story of Maria and Brendan shows how rapidly our norms and hopes for retirement are shifting across time and geography. 
From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, The Retirement Ladder. I'm Ken Stern. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. Learn more at CorbridgeFinancial.com. You never know. These moms are so stressed. A little bit helps them. You come to the hospital expecting to take your baby home after you deliver, and then you leave the baby here for almost eight months sometimes. A year sometimes, that's difficult. is when they are closer to going home. They come to these, this is called the step-down unit, which is a, it's still a risk, so it's a high-risk nursery. Morning. Morning. So this is where they are, this is a jaundice baby, that's why he has the blue lights. Uh, but it's a quiet area. We try to keep four babies in a room, so moms, moms come more here to visit, hold the babies, feed the babies. They still need their temperature, so you see the isolates are still closed. Uh, so they still can't control their own temperature, so. What, what are the biz- biggest risks that a 25 or 26 year old, 20 week old baby uh, uh, face? A whole yeah. lot, neurological, gastric. Um, they have to learn at that age, they, when they come out, they've got to learn to breathe, eat. Some of them don't know how to eat yet, but then they have gastric issues, so then we have to tube feed them, and then they are IV fluids, and that causes problems, so it's, it's a fine tune. It's like increase one, decrease one, increase the other, increase your feeds, decrease your IV, and sometimes that balance is difficult for that body to adjust to. And then they have neurological deficits too because you're so long on an intubator, ventilator. Basically, you're born so early, so it's difficult to adjust. It's painstaking work, a fact not eased by the tight quarters at LBJ. But Maria is already looking forward to what the next generation of patients will find. Like Harris County itself, LBJ Hospital is a melting pot. Signs are posted in English, Spanish, and Vietnamese, and translation services are provided in many more languages. And the accents? Some are pure Texas, but others come from much further away. I was born in Bombay, India, now known as Mumbai. Mm-hmm. And I went to school there. Uh, convent school, St. Agnes's, when they got very close-knit family. Uh, I was the first to leave from there and go to the Middle East. So I was in the Middle East. I worked in Bahrain for about almost four years um, with the defense hospital over there. Working at a U.S. military hospital gave Maria her first window into America. So I got U.S. influence and I'm like, maybe that's a good place. Initially, my goal was to travel the world, like four years every place, till my parents like, okay, it's time you settle down. <laughs> so I came over here, they offered me either California and Houston, me being like, I need my independence, I got too much family in California, let's go to Houston. So that's how I had landed with actually Harris County Hospital District at that time, LBJ Hospital. But she wasn't alone. 
1991 came here uh, to Harris County Hospital District. It was a group of Indian nurses, Filipino nurses, nurses from the Middle East. We all came here and I started exactly at LBJ Hospital in B. Johnson. I was a PD neo nurse, but I always wanted to go into adult ICU, so went into the adult ICU and after 10 months, I'm like, this is it, let's go back to the babies. But they didn't have anything, so moved to Bentop, stayed with Harris County, and then wanted growth, so I moved to the private sector at that point. Moved to the private sector for a whole long 16 years, uh, got my leadership skills there, everything, and I'm like, it's time to go back. Murray enjoyed her time in the private sector, but it wasn't quite home. I was just telling someone, LBJ is family. It's, you feel at home there, and that's why so many of us drive the distance. And as he said, I do drive 45 minutes on a good day, an hour and a half on a bad day to get to work. But it's the place. I love what I do over there. I enjoy what I do over there. I've actually taken them there and introduced them to the hospital system. But uh, it's fun. I really enjoy what I do. And that's why I went back to LBJ. Maria's career has traced a long arc and her notions of retirement have followed an equally long and complex trajectory. I have, I'm 60 and I have a lot of fears about retirement. So this is, you know, this is my therapy. So, uh, so what, are, what, what I'm you... thinking about is I go to work, get up every morning, go to work. Uh, till a week ago, I would come back to schoolwork, papers, meet faculties, do that. I'm just excited about the Saturday coming up. I, I was telling people I get to sleep and I'll get up and have a faculty meeting with my fact chair at school. So I do all that, right? I keep... All that's keeping me busy. It's like, if I really stop, will I have enough things to keep me going, right? Travel is so much. It's like, I need to be able to have structure. I'm a very person that it has to have structure. I've got to do this this way, this the other way. So is that going to happen with me? Um, Second fear, and this is kind of on a personal level, my dad retired when he was 55. Never wanted to retire, but decided it's about time he retired. And my mother retired right after that. But uh, he kept saying, what will I do when I'm at home without, without a focus to get up? He died a year later. So, you know, that's inbuilt fear with me. It's like, yes, when I was younger, 45 seemed a great age. But as I get closer or I pass that age, it's like, should I keep working or should I retire? Yeah. Of course, as I said, it's a passion with what I do too. So that has overtaken the thought of retirement. Those are my main fears. It's like, will I have something to get up to every morning? It's a fear shared by her family who have a close view of what drives Maria and what gives her meaning and purpose. My other son has told me I can never retire. <laughs> <laughs> He says, please don't retire, because we, we were on the strip recently, and the three, I don't know where Brennan was, the three of us were talking about something, and I said, yeah, in a couple of years, we after, I said a couple of years just drastically, when we retire, and he's like, oh, no, please don't retire. <laughs> so he has the same notion that I won't know what to do with myself when I retire, and he's like, you'll be lost. Maria has rejected not just the early retirement goals of her upbringing in Mumbai, but some of the family expectations associated with it. 
once they retire, stay with, stays with the youngest son. So basically, if we were in Bombay, he would have a mother-in-law house or another house, apartment, where it would be close to me. So if that's sort of the cultural framework you come from, uh, why are you so adamantly opposed to it here? Yeah, I come from that cultural framework, but also in Bombay, there's so much different culture. It's culture within culture. It's, it's literally, like they say, it, it is the melting pot. There's so much culture. So yes, uh, that's the culture there, but our family was a little more different on that. And I also saw, not with my own family, but with relatives, the burdens it was cause and the rifts it caused with family and the issues. And I'm like, no, it's not happening with me and my kids. And that's what my, uh, my Alan, my husband said too, but it does cause this healthcare, right? And there's homes that can take care of you. So why do you have to burden a child? And that happened with my kind of my husband's side of the family, but I've seen it happen with relatives too, where, Kids have to give up, children give up their job just to take care of their parents. Why? No. We brought you all up for so many years so that we can retire successfully and independently and you all can lead your lives independently. Even at age 57, Maria is still focused on work and not transitioning to retirement. Her passion for her work, her need for structure and engagement is front of mind. But money is a factor too. So that's one of the challenges that we faced when we left Bombay and came here because the inheritance got left behind, right? Mm -hmm. So in Bombay, in India, basically, inheritance, the houses come down, everything comes down to you. And by this age, we, my dad's inheritance would have been there. There would have been. So we, when we came here, basically, both my husbands have signed up everything. So we started with a bare slate, right? So that big buffer wasn't there. So yes, it is a challenge right now, right? Because then getting them settled and through the, their careers, of course, they're med school, they're on their own, but even then it's some amount of daily spending, uh, me going back to school, me settling house, cars, all that took up. We basically initially, when we first started, it was like paycheck to paycheck. Now we have a buffer, right? So that buffer is growing. 401k is great. The 457 that Harris Health offers is great. So that has helped us boost to where we can say, yes, we can retire successfully. Even for a careful planner like Maria, it's a daunting task to think through the economics of a multi-decade retirement. Now, the long-term retirement, have we planned for 57 plus 40? No. 57 plus 30, yes. So that's where the extra years. Now, did I say I'm not retiring because I don't have money to live to 97? No, that has not crossed my mind. Perhaps it should cross your mind. Murray has roughly a one in three chance of living to 90. And though the odds of it are much lower, a rapidly increasing number of Americans are living past 100. We're notoriously bad at estimating our own mortality, and truthfully, few like to even think about it, leaving many of us like Maria planning from year to year. But the reason I'm still not retired is because, as I said, I still love what I do. But yeah, sometimes money can be, but then you just have, we just, 
we did talk about it that if we and when we do retire, we just have to plan and budget for when we for as we go. So there's a budget that keeps going and growing. That's that's the only thing we can think of right now. Would ne <clears throat> would never want to be a burden on the two boys, right? So they have their lives. We have our lives. So that's it. For such a tight knit family, one that still vacations together and works just yards apart. Mother and son have rather different views of retirement. Economic uncertainty hangs over Brendan, making him think about investing and planning much earlier than his parents. Do you even think about retirement? Is that even a concept that uh, flits across your mind at all? It's, I mean, it, it does, right? Because, you know, there are you know, things like finances and all of that that I have to think ahead, like long term. Um, but I think right now I'm kind of in the real like heat of my career in terms of, you know, I really have to push on the gas in terms of training and education and making sure I'm set up uh, to where I want to be in my career. Um, so I definitely think I'm definitely still strongly on the uphill. Um, I haven't even gotten, you know, a full job job, still in training. So I think it's, it's a long way out, but it's definitely something I've thought of. I'm curious, uh, and I can tell you for the answer, uh, I can't remember when I had the first conversation about retirement with anyone who was sort of my peer age, but it was probably um, when I was a lot older than you are. But I'm sort of curious, is it something that you and your friends have ever talked about? Yeah, and I think the the idea of retirement and the idea of like long-term, like career planning, life planning, I think a lot of that also comes up when we're kind of like deciding our specialty even. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have to apply to specific, specific residency program during medical school. And I think a lot of the conversation in medicine right now is surrounding burnout. Um, you know, it's a hot topic in medicine because, you know, we have, especially after the pandemic, thousands of physicians, you know, walking out, quitting, emergency medicine physicians, surgeons are quitting, physician suicide rates are ever increasing. So you think about burnout a lot. And, you know, I don't want myself to experience that. I don't want to retire. I don't want to quit. In that kind of picture, I want to be able to kind of retire my own terms and retire in a way that I'm happy and when I'm ready to do it and not because I'm burned out, right? So I think a lot of the conversation with me and my friends is, you know, like, how am I setting myself up so that long term I'm not going to burn out? So a lot of that has to do with, you know, picking the right specialty for you, picking the right residency, um, choosing your job, choosing your training in such a way that you're not setting yourself up to burnout and you're prioritizing the things that matter. Concerns over the COVID recession, spiraling inflation, and economic stability is widespread in Brendan's generation. Millennials and Gen Z have much more of a skeptical look at their economic situation compared to their parents, believing it much harder to buy a house, hold a job, get promoted, and save for retirement. I think there are a lot of like economic forces out of our control that do make you know, financial stability harder at an earlier age. Um, we try to do as much as possible, you know, myself included, and our people of our age, um, try to do as much as possible to kind of like set us set ourselves up for financial stability. Um, but it does require a lot of thought, a lot of fore planning, preparation. Um, but I think I'm taking the steps now, so that hopefully, you know, I'll have that opportunity. Um, so, so let me ask you about the, that sort of how you're setting mm -hmm. yourself up. So, 
uh, one way you're setting yourself up really is is towards a successful career, right? Um, um, and a financially rewarding career. Hopefully. Right. Um, does that also mean beginning financial planning now, setting aside money, 401ks, all that stuff? Yeah, I mean, medicine as a, as a career is financially rewarding, but there's also tons of student debt also associated with that. So, I mean, a lot of people think, you know, medicine is, is very fruitful, but at the same time, you know, we have a lot, of, a lot of positive value in terms of future income, and then we also have a lot of debt associated with medicine and medical school itself. Um, so I think there's a lot of like economic complexities there too. Um, but I think one thing is like the fact that we're like having these conversations earlier on, and I'm not sure, you know, people of my parents' generation, um, you know, had conversations in their teens and twenties about, you know, financial planning and retirement planning and all of that. But I think people now, I think are actively thinking about that, uh, because of, you know, the problems that have been brought up and all of the economic issues that we're seeing right now. And perhaps because of all these economic issues, the sense that careers will be a slog, Zoomers like Brendan are looking to retirement less as a next act and more as an escape hatch. Gen Z on average wants to retire by age 60, far younger than other generations. Brendan himself says he wants to start winding down around age 50, but his sense of responsibility for his mother is a bit old school. Well, I think, I think the goal and the way I've always seen it is that ideally... You set yourself, I set myself up financially so that we can do whatever we want. So that if she does want to stay with me, she can. If she does want to live independently, she has that opportunity available to her. There's no saying like where I'm going to be in 20 years, 10, 20, 30 years. There's no saying where she wants to be. If she doesn't want to go to Italy or Africa on her safari, she could do that too. Like I don't want to tie her down and say, well, this is the norm. You should stay with me. I have this extra house. I also don't want to put her in a nursing home. But <clears throat> I think we also like uh, intertwangle like, you know, the idea of like end of life care, nursing homes, all of that with retirement in itself. And I think we have to like separate those two. Like she can retire, right, in her own way that she wants to. She can travel. She can stay by herself, but then I also want to be able to help her out with that end-of-life care, nursing homes, mother-in-law suite on my house, like whatever it means to her when that when that ship comes to harbor. But before that ship comes to harbor, mother and son have places to go, boxes to tick. If you had to put it like a place, sounds like you already do a lot, a place on that vision board for the big trip, um, what would it be? Do you have like an idea, like there's a celebratory trip that I'm going to take when I when I retire? Before I retire, I plan on visiting every continent. Before you retire? Have you hit, hit Antarctica yet? Does <laughs> no. that even count? No, it doesn't. Okay. <laughs> that doesn't count. So what are you missing? I'm missing uh, Africa. Oh, where else just, just one. You're only missing Africa. <laughs> I'm only missing Africa. I was like, where else? <laughs> so it may be that that trip will be the big huge safari that I, I'm waiting to go on. So maybe that will end with that. I'll start my plan and then go back around all the other continents again. Support for this podcast comes from Corbridge Financial, making it possible for more people to take action in their financial lives for today and tomorrow. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Bump, and Camilo Garzon. 
Music for this episode was provided by Ramtin Arablouei. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.